you would, find a copy of God's Word and turn to Acts chapter 8. Would you turn there? I want to thank you for hosting the (coughs) seminar this weekend, for all the financial outlay that it takes, all of the work that's been involved. Y'all, you're... You've done something where your kindness is going to end up being a benefit to congregations other than your own. The only thing I can do is ask the Lord to bless you as you've been a blessing to others and to thank you for what you've done. Um, Also, I am always thankful for the opportunity to be here and worship with you. I love worshiping with you in song. Um worshiping you with you in prayer and I want us to remember that the declaration of God's word is also an act of worship. And so I'd like to ask Brother Lewis Kiger if he would to ask the blessing on the proclamation of the word. Before getting into this story Luke is about to tell us, I I want to remind some of y'all, y'all who have been here for the seminar, that one of the things we've noted is some of what Luke has already recorded. It's Luke's purpose in the book of Acts to show the continuation of the ministry and message of Jesus. He says in chapter 1, verse 1, to his friend Theophilus, to whom he writes this, I wrote to you the former treatise, the Gospel of Luke, of all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so now, this book of Acts is the continuation of what Jesus will do and teach. To prove this, Luke frequently brings in accounts from Jesus in the Gospels and shows essentially a mirror image of those accounts in the book of Acts. So, for example, Peter and John healing a lame man at the gate of the temple by simply telling him, rise up and walk, exactly the way that Jesus healed a man. Or if you remember, it's Luke's Gospel that records for us Christ's prayer as he was nailed to the cross, and he said, Father, forgive them. And then we see that mirrored in The martyr Stephen's death who prays loudly, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Well, Luke is about to do that again here in chapter 8. Back in 
Luke's Gospel in chapter 24, after the death of Jesus and His resurrection, Luke tells the story of two disciples walking down the road away from Jerusalem toward a place called Emmaus. And as they're walking and they're talking, they are confused right, about what has just happened to Jesus. And a stranger to them appears, walks closer with them, Ask them about their conversation. You look sad and confused. What are you talking about? And we know that stranger is Jesus, but they didn't know that at the moment. And when they tell the story about the death of Jesus, that stranger asks them, well, shouldn't the Messiah have suffered these things? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them the scriptures, in the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And so, Traveling down this road with them, he explains the Scriptures. He gives them understanding and peace and joy. And then finally, at the end of that account, Luke says, he vanished out of their sight. Now, in Acts, we're going to see a mirror image in many ways of that story. This is what I want to talk about tonight. Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 26, and we'll read through verse 40. The angel of the Lord spoke unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south unto the way that goes down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasure, had come to Jerusalem for to worship, and was returning. And sitting in his chariot, and read Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near, join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him, and heard him read the prophet Isaiah, and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and like a, or as a sheep to the slaughter, like a lamb dumb before his shears, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaks the prophet this? Of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came into a certain water and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What does hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing, 
But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. As we walk through this sacred text tonight, I want to draw our attention to three essentials for successful evangelism. Three essentials for successful evangelism. Although, let me say up front, I don't want the title to confuse you. All evangelism is successful. Telling a lost person about the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ is never a failed effort. But if we're looking for some case and some some significance where we see a sinner be saved, that kind of success in evangelism, we see in this text three essential elements for evangelism. Basically, the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch shows us basic biblical patterns for evangelism. So let's see three things. First, Successful evangelism requires the sovereign initiative of God. The very first words of verse 26 show us that initiating the work of salvation is part of the work of God Himself. It is the will of God Himself who initiates this saving evangelism. Verse 26 says, The angel of the Lord spoke unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south unto the way that goes from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And everything that follows this command from the angel of the Lord happens because God did it. It's not Philip's design. It's not the Ethiopian's desire. God did it. God puts the ball into play. He starts the wheels in motion. He gives the message to Philip to go down that road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, so that you can picture this, Gaza is the southernmost city in Palestine, just on the edge of the desert, leading towards Egypt, and then from Egypt on into inner Africa. So Philip is commanded by the messenger of God, to go to the south, to the road that's leading from Jerusalem toward the African continent, toward Gaza. And Luke adds, he says that this road is desert, or that is, it is deserted. There are actually two ways at this point in time to get from Jerusalem to Gaza. One road is through villages and cities, and the other is more of a a bypass route. You may have experienced something like this before. The government decides to build a new road that's quicker and more direct, and the old road gets abandoned, right? So in the U.S., for many years, Route 66 was the most famous highway in the country. There were songs about it. There were TV shows about it. Route 66 ran from Chicago to Los Angeles, but when the government started building interstate highways, most of Route 66 ended up being decommissioned. And once thriving communities turned into ghost towns. But even today, there are some secluded sections that you can still drive down. This is what God's calling Philip to do. Go down the road from Jerusalem to Gaza. 
but not the big highway that everybody uses. Not the one that's got the, the Bucky's gas station and a nice rest area at every exit. You go down that old dilapidated road that hardly anybody uses anymore because I've got something planned for you along the way. And this is, if, if we just started it at the beginning of this chapter and read it all in context, this seems like a very odd command. Because earlier in this chapter, we have seen Philip leave Jerusalem and go north into Samaria. It actually says in verse 5, he went to the city of Samaria. But Samaria is a region. When it's saying the city, it's saying he went to the main city, the major city, the capital city, the most populated place. And this is naturally the desire of an evangelist to make the gospel known to as many lost sinners as you possibly can. And as he had gone up there earlier in the chapter, things had gone really well. Lots of people had been saved. Peter and John had to come up and help. And yet God, in His sovereign initiative, sometimes takes us out of the comfort of a crowd and sends us down a lonely road for a purpose. When he gets this command, Philip does not know what that purpose is. Understand, the command of verse 26 is all he got. Philip, I want you to leave this massive evangelistic revival going on up north here in Samaria, and you go down south to the lonely road from Jerusalem to Gaza. And it was not until Philip got there that he understood the purpose. So who did understand the purpose? God. It's his sovereign initiative to send Philip. Friends, this is is something that we have to grasp from these kinds of stories in Scripture. Do you understand that your hearing of the Gospel was not a coincidence to God? It is not something that just happened in the eyes of God. He is not some, um, uh, some impotent God who takes a shotgun approach to spreading the gospel. Desperately hoping if some, someone might hear. He is all-powerful and in His will, He can target the heart of those people who He's determined to save, even if it means sending one of His good evangelists down a deserted road through the middle of nowhere to do it. This mindset that some people have today of, you know, God sent Jesus to die for sinners and now God has done all he can do is frankly in opposition to this story. As you read this, you are meant to understand that coincidence alone would not have brought the gospel to this man. In fact, while he's carrying with him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, he's got the the gospel in his hands, he does not understand it, and he is not getting any closer to understanding it. In fact, geographically, he's even getting further further away from any hope of understanding as every minute goes by. Thus far in Acts, the gospel has traveled north out of Jerusalem. This is the first record we have of the gospel coming south out of Jerusalem. This man's on his way 
away from the gospel to be you know, lost in the inner African continent unless God intervenes. And so God, in his sovereign initiative, sends the gospel to this man because he intends for him to believe and be saved. Verse 27 describes, it says, he arose, that is, Philip arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasure, and had come up to Jerusalem for to worship. So, Philip gets this command, (coughs) and Philip is obedient. We're going to see in a moment that salvation of a sinner includes the submissive willingness of a believer to share the gospel. And Philip is submissive here even before he grasps God's purpose in the command. God says, go down that deserted road, and Philip goes down the deserted road. It isn't until he gets there and he hears the wheels of a chariot rattling over ancient potholes, and just audible over the sound of that chariot's wheels is this African-accented voice of a strange man reading from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Now as you read this, remember... Luke is unfolding this story so that we know some things about this man before Philip knew anything about him. Right? Luke tells us about this man in the chariot before Philip even knows there is a chariot. This man is a eunuch, Luke tells us. It was common in that day for a slave to be castrated in the expectation that it would make him more docile and more trustworthy. And so eunuchs would be used to keep royal harems, or in the case of this man, entrusted with the crown's treasure. Eunuchs were valuable as slaves because they're not going to get distracted by physical desires, and obviously they're not going to be able to have a family that ends up occupying their time. So you get that slave's undivided attention. That's a rotten life if you're a eunuch, right? No hope for children, no hope for family, no hope for a legacy of your own. Also, you should not think of Ethiopia here in terms of modern-day Ethiopia. At that time, Ethiopia was this massive nation that was located just south of Egypt. I don't want to make too much of this, but in the Roman uh, Empire and their writings, Ethiopia was known as the Nubian Empire, and it was considered the edge of the known world. And so, as Jesus had said, you're going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Symbolically, in the Roman mind, this is where that's going to take place. The gospel is about to go to the edge of the world. The Ethiopian kingdom had a king, but the real power was traditionally given to the queen mother, who is Candace. That's not a proper name. That's a title given to her. And she has this slave who is a eunuch, who is in charge of her royal treasury, and this man had come to Jerusalem in order to worship. But what I want you to understand is he would have hardly been allowed to worship when he got to Jerusalem. While it is likely that this man is a Hebrew by birth, as a eunuch, he would have been officially restricted from being able to go into the inner part of the temple. He could have come into the outer courtyard and he could have 
got up to that fence that you could stare over and watch other people bringing sacrifices and worshiping, but it was very much a do not enter for him because eunuchs were not allowed. He would have been restricted from doing the exact thing he had come to Jerusalem to do. He would not have been able to engage in the truest form of worship. And so he has left, and it says in verse 28, he was returning, he was sitting in his chariot, reading the prophet Isaiah. Now this is kind of fun, because in that day, all reading was done out loud. That was just the normal way they did it. Even even reading alone, you would read out loud. Now, this probably made crowded ancient libraries kind of a hectic place to try to study, right? But he was reading out loud because that's what they naturally did. So after visiting the temple, just watching others, on his way out of town, this eunuch might have stopped by the local religious bookstore and purchased himself a copy of the sacred scroll of Isaiah and was reading it out loud as he rode down the road. And it's that moment that Philip must have finally understood why God had sent him down this road. Because long before this eunuch learns a lesson about God from Philip, Philip learned a message from God through his use of this eunuch. As he was directed down the road and heard the eunuch reading Isaiah, the lesson that Philip learned was this. Our God does not work through luck, coincidence, and fluky twists of fate. He works with a sovereign purpose to accomplish his will. God sent him down that road, and he found down that road exactly what God had sent him for. Y'all, let's just worship God in this. Our God, what a, what a wonderful God he is who, who takes a man and uses him to bring the gospel to large crowds in this big city and then takes the same man out of that city and sends him down a deserted road to proclaim the love of Christ to a single eunuch on his way out of Jerusalem. Whether for many or whether for only one sinner... The success of the gospel, successful evangelism, relies on the sovereign initiative of God himself. It's God's divine plan to save this man. As shown by the Spirit's command in verse 29, the Spirit said to Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. Can I just put that in today's language for you? Philip. Go get him. In fact, the word for join there is actually picturesque. It means to cleave or to cling, right? Philip, you go grab a hold of that chariot and do not let it go until I tell you. So first, successful evangelism relies on the sovereign initiative of God. Secondly, see that successful evangelism requires The submissive willingness of a believer. Verse 30 and 31. Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you read? And he said, How can I except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. Philip ran thither to the chariot. Now let's do a little word study on what that word run means. That means 
going a lot faster than walking. By the way, don't picture this as a you know one-man chariot like Ben Hur riding around the arena, or you know uh, an Amish buggy. It's more something like a stagecoach or an old covered wagon. I don't know whether Philip had to chase this thing down from behind or rush down to the highway in order to get there and flag it down before the chariot passes by. But whichever it was, Philip did not delay in complying with the command of God. He obeyed with haste, right? He obeyed with enthusiasm. He followed God's command and ran down to the chariot. He also obeyed with some cleverness. We read at the end of verse 30, and we just think, you know, do you understand what you're reading? But there's actually this fun play on words in that phrase that you, actually you might hear it if you heard it in Greek, the original language. It is genoskes ha anagenoskes. And it's kind of clever. What it means literally is, do you know what you know? Do you understand what you're understanding? Like, man, you get what the words mean, but do you understand the meaning of the word? Without so much as a, who are you? Because this guy had just chased, the complete stranger just chased down his chariot and asked this question. The Ethiopian eunuch answers Philip by expressing exasperation. How could I possibly understand unless somebody guides me? Like, man, you want to take a shot at it? Come up here and sit in the chariot instead of just jogging alongside. And here's what the eunuch has done. He has, in doing this, expressed uh, a gospel truth from the perspective of a lost person. How is he ever going to believe in Jesus as Messiah and Savior unless somebody explains to him the need of a Savior and Messiah. Of course, the eunuch's not actually thinking all that. He's simply saying, look, yeah, there's stuff I don't know, and and I'm convinced I'm going to just continually, perpetually not know unless somebody sits down and tells it to me straight. But this is a reality of evangelism from a lost person's perspective, they don't even know what it is that they don't know. Here's how that looks from a saved person's perspective. Paul describes it in Romans 10, verses 13 through 15. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher. And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. Essentially, salvation requires believing, but believing requires you to hear, and for you to hear requires somebody talking. And so, the eunuch will only understand in retrospect that Philip's quick feet chasing down his chariot on this deserted road was a beautiful sight to behold. And it only happens because of Philip's willing submissiveness to the command of God. And so they go down the road together, right? Eunuch, the eunuch and and the evangelist. I picture them side by side balancing the scroll of Isaiah in their laps. 
you know, the chariot hitting bumps and potholes on that old Jerusalem to Gaza road. The scroll had no chapter and verse divisions. Those things weren't added until much later. Right? Instead, the eunuch simply points to the part of the scroll that he had been reading. But Luke tells us that it's what we know as Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. Here's how he records it in verse 32 and 33. The place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation... His judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. Now let me just say, if I had to preach Jesus from any Old Testament passage of Scripture, I don't think you could make a better choice than Isaiah 53. We know that all Scripture points to Jesus. As he said, search the Scriptures for In them you think you have eternal life, and they all, they testify of me. But Isaiah 53 is written as a song, as a a psalm, a kind of poem. And if we gave it a title, it would be The Song of the Suffering Servant. And it is well known for phrases like, He is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. With His stripes, we are healed. It is perhaps the most clear passage in the Old Testament that proclaims the work of Jesus in taking the sin of His people onto Himself, dying in their place, being buried and rising again from the tomb, and even rejoicing at the salvation that he's brought to his people. And yet, even the clearest biblical truths needs the illumination of the Holy Spirit in order to open the eyes of those who are lost. (coughs) In Philip's day, there were differing opinions about the meaning of Isaiah 53. Many Many scholars in that day suggested Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, is the the whole nation of Israel. But that's just a, a ludicrous interpretation since the servant is always spoken of in the male singular, right? He. And only the ones for whom he is suffering are talked about in the plural, right? So for example, Isaiah 53, 5, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. This servant can't be the nation of Israel. It has to be one person. To his credit, even though the eunuch does not understand, he seems to have understood that much. Because he focuses on two other common possibilities for the day, and he asks Philip about them in verse 34. The eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaks the prophet this, of himself or of some other man? (laughs) Y'all, I would so like for this to happen to me. I am waiting for the day where I am walking down the street and I overhear someone reading the Gospels out loud and they look at me and say, hey you, you want to come over here and explain this to me? I mean, this is just awesome the way it, it, it falls out, right? The, the Holy Spirit has 
set the ball on a tee. The eunuch himself is like handing Philip the bat, and it's like, swing away, preacher, get after it. And so, verse 35, Philip opened his mouth and began in the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. This is reminiscent of Jesus with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Luke tells that story in the Gospels. He says that beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. You know, I'm guessing that Jesus even hit Isaiah 53 in the process. So now, Philip, starting at Isaiah 53, gets to preach Jesus to this eunuch. All Scripture points to Jesus. As Charles Spurgeon famously said, you know, take the text and make a beeline for the cross. I have a Spurgeon bobblehead on my desk back at home. I imagine he would be appalled if he knew such a thing existed, but he's dead and I got it, right? But it's nice when I get stuck and I'm writing a sermon and I don't know what to write next, and it's like I look over and like, Chuck, so shall I make a beeline for the cross now? And I can just hit him, and he's like... Mm-hmm. For Philip, it is, a, it is a direct line from Isaiah's suffering servant to the work, the glorious work of Jesus on the cross. Because Philip was submissive to the Lord's command and willing to obey the calling of God to proclaim Jesus, he's provided with an opportunity. <clears throat> so we've seen successful evangelism requires the sovereign initiative of God. Successful evangelism requires the submissive willingness of a believer. But third, successful evangelism requires the saving faith of a sinner. In verse 36, as they went on their way, they came to a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What does hinder me to be baptized? So as Philip preached Jesus, there must have been more recorded for us than, you know, there, there must have been more conversation than what, than what Luke's recorded for us. Unless the way you think this went was the, the eunuch asked, was this prophet writing about himself or somebody else? And Philip went, he's writing about Jesus. Would you like to be baptized now? Understand, Luke doesn't tell us the whole conversation. What he says in verse 35 is that Philip began at that scripture and preached Jesus. And that is, there was a process that started there. And we understand the biblical call of the gospel as displayed in Acts is to repent of your sins, trust in Jesus as Savior, and be baptized as a public declaration of your commitment to Him. All the way back on the day of Pentecost, in Acts 2.38, Peter had said, repent and be baptized every one of you. Right. So earlier in this chapter, Philip, had gone up into Samaria, and he was preaching in verse 12. It says, those that believed Philip's message were baptized. So this conversation went on longer than just an exposition of Isaiah 53, but it starts there. And somewhere in that conversation, the the eunuch could finally answer Philip's initial question positively. Right? Oh, Praise God. Yes, I understand what I'm reading. 
Because prior to this, the eunuch would read and it would be, well, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb dumb before her shears. He didn't open his mouth. But now the eyes of his heart are opened and in the very soul of the eunuch, he knows that this is about what Jesus has done for him. No, he, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter. He was the sacrificial lamb that died to take away my sin. Yes, I understand it. And so rejoicing and talking and traveling, the chariot finally comes to some roadside oasis, and the eunuch asks, is there anything that prevents me from being baptized here? Now, if you remember what we learned about this man, I want you to think about what he's asking and why he's asking it. He had just gone up to Jerusalem in order to worship Yahweh, but the policy for temple worship is clear, right? No eunuchs allowed. You can come into the courtyard, but then you just have to stand there staring over the dividing wall and you can watch other people worship. You can't come in. And after Philip's teaching, the eunuch understands Jesus is the suffering servant of Yahweh. Real salvation, true worship is only found in Jesus. But, but, I think he's wondering, well, what's the catch this time? Is Jesus willing to have me? Right? We read this as, Well, what does hinder me to be baptized? But I think what the eunuch is saying is, is there anything that prevents me from being baptized? Can I do it? Will Jesus take me? And Philip's answer is, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You might have the same question at some point in your life. What is there anything that prevents me from being baptized? And the question in return always just has to be, do you believe? Do you know that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb to take away your sin? Do you believe that He lived for you? That He died for you? That He was buried and that He rose again for you? And so He defeated death for you. So that when he says everyone who believes in me has everlasting life, he's defeated death and that life is his to give. Because baptism is for believers. It's an outward declaration that you trust the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus has secured your salvation. What we learn from Acts chapter 8 is what the Bible teaches, what the early church believed and what we should still practice today. The minimum requirement for baptism is the same as the maximum requirement for baptism. To be baptized, you have to believe. You must believe in Jesus and make a profession of faith. At the same time, the church should require nothing more than that. There's no minimum age in Scripture. There's no confirmation class. There's no theological exam you have to be able to pass. To follow the Great Commission, it is preach the Gospel, make disciples, baptize the disciples. 
Now, one of the things we just have to see here in Acts 8 is that the picture of baptism, it is so clearly being immersed underwater and not just sprinkled with it or having it poured on your head. Think about this. The Ethiopian eunuch is traveling by chariot through the desert from Jerusalem to inner Africa. Do you think he doesn't have any water in the chariot? Like, I doubt that he's going to be able to open up the mini fridge and pull out a bottle of Dasani, but he's got some kind of water in the chariot. You don't travel through the desert without water. Surely there was enough to have pulled out and been sprinkled by it or been, been, have some poured on you, but he waits for this roadside oasis before he asks, here is enough water, can I be baptized? And we see that in the rest of the text too. In verse 38, he commanded the chariot to stand still and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. They both got in the water. Philip baptized. And the word means immersed. He immersed the eunuch under the water. And the next verse says they both came up out of the water. Baptism is a public declaration of those who have trusted in Jesus as their Savior. And you might be thinking, how is the eunuch being baptized by himself in the middle of the desert a public declaration? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Thank you. Let me point out the answer to you from the text. Verse 38 lets us know the eunuch is not driving because he ordered for the chariot to be stopped. There is at least one other person in that chariot hearing this whole conversation go on. Maybe more than one other person in the chariot. And so this eunuch's declaration of faith wasn't only to Philip, it was to the other servant or servants who were in the chariot. And on returning to Ethiopia, you have to know the word would have spread quickly that this trusted advisor and high authority for Queen Candace had the chariot stopped in the middle of the desert so that he could get out, get in the water, be dunked as a declaration of his new loyalty as a servant of King Jesus. Absolutely, this is a public declaration of faith. Now, there is a curious statement in verse 39. It says, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip. They got out of the water, and Philip was gone. Like, I don't know if there was a noise. Poof. You know, he's just gone. He was, or maybe snatched up in a cloud. We don't know, but the Spirit took him away, and the description is the eunuch did not see him again. Now, when you read through Acts, you see Philip again. Luke's not done with Philip's story. He traces at the end of the chapter Philip getting to Caesarea, and then by the time you get to Acts 21, Paul comes through Caesarea, and he encounters Philip and his family there. So you'll see more about Philip, but this is the last we hear about this eunuch from Ethiopia. The early church writers say that he continued into Ethiopia and he evangelized that nation. And that's possible, but it is not certain. All we know for sure is what Luke says at the end of verse 39. He went on his way rejoicing. He was rejoicing. I also like to think that he went on his way reading. You don't think he put the scroll of Isaiah down, right? 
But now the Spirit of God has used Philip to open his eyes and give him understanding. And let me tell you, the things that he will learn when he reads Isaiah, he's going to find promises that God has made to him personally. In fact, in my Bible, it's just the turn of one page to get from Isaiah 53 to Isaiah 56, where this man who was a eunuch as a servant slave of Queen Candace No hope of children, no hope of family, no hope of any legacy. Let me tell you what he's going to read when he just twists the scroll a little further. Isaiah 56, starting at verse 3. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbath and choose the things that please me and take hold of my covenant, my promises, even unto them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. He had had so much in his life taken away from him, but the promised blessing of God will never be taken away from him. He lost the hope of sons and daughters and a legacy, but God says, you trust my promise and you're going to get even better than sons and daughters. And he goes on his way rejoicing because even though for this life he is going to spend the rest of it as a servant of Candace, queen of Ethiopia, Through faith in Jesus, he knows God's promise that I'm bringing you into my house, inside of my walls, and you're going to have a family there that's better than anything you've missed in this life. This Ethiopian eunuch found more life and more fulfillment than he could have ever hoped for. My friends, listen to me. No person who repents of their sins and trusts Jesus ever spends their time regretting what it is that they've left behind. You let go of your sin and entrust your life to Jesus Christ as Lord, and you will continue down the road of your life rejoicing. But I think the practical lessons in this text are for those who already believe. I usually avoid having people raise hands for anything in church. We wouldn't want anybody to think we're excited. Right? (laughs) But this time, I am going to ask for a show of hands with something. Give me just a moment. I'm curious, of those who are here who are believers, who've trusted in Jesus as Savior, I'm curious how many of us were saved by hearing the Gospel in the church compared to those who heard the Gospel outside the church. So, show of hands. How many of you were saved when you heard the gospel in a church service? Okay? And I, keep your hands up for a second. Glance around for a minute. How many of you were saved when you heard the gospel outside of church? You see the difference here? Do you think the pattern we see in Acts matches up with the pattern we follow today? When the Lord Jesus gave the commission to spread the gospel, you know the very first word in that commission was go, right? He asserted his power and authority and said, go, preach the gospel to every creature. Go, make disciples of all nations. Philip, arise and go down that deserted road and talk to a eunuch. Obedience to Jesus is not passive, it is active. 
It is go. The gospel is not intended to work like, I want you to come in here and sit with the disciples of Jesus. The gospel is intended to work as, go out there and make disciples of Jesus. What we've seen in this text is the salvation of a sinner, the successful example of evangelism, has three essential elements. There's the sovereign initiative of God to save a sinner. There is the submissive willingness of a believer to proclaim the gospel. And there is the saving faith of the, faith of the one who hears that message. Our churches today, y'all, a lot of times we are skipping a step. Listen, I don't think God is going to send an angel to you and tell you, I want you to go out to old Route 66 until you find that 1988 Ford Fairlane and attach yourself to it so you can proclaim the gospel. But at the same time, what God has done is I am certain He has put people in your heart who you know needs to be saved, and you have an understanding of the gospel message, you know it's the sovereign initiative of God that's the catalyst for salvation. You desperately want to have that individual come to faith in Jesus. And here's how that happens. The story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch shows the basic biblical pattern for evangelism. Evangelism begins with the sovereign initiative of God, and He has made His will clear to us. Declare the gospel to all kinds of people in all kinds of places. Successful evangelism requires the submissive willingness of a believer. That's us. It would be an abuse of God's sovereignty to ask Him to save a sinner by faith in Jesus while at the same time being unwilling to declare that sinner to that sinner their need for Jesus. If we follow Philip's example and we go and we start wherever they happen to be at and make a beeline for the cross, declare the gospel of Jesus to them, then we'll see people following the eunuch's example in saving faith so that sinner will go down the road of their life rejoicing in Jesus as Savior. Y'all, thank you again. Go to Jack.